All right, hope everybody's doing good. Uh, I'm Rob. I am here with a drummer around Kansas City, percussionist. Drummer? Sure, drummer, yeah. Either, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, Sam Platt, how are you doing, Hi. man? Nice to see you, Rob. Yeah, yeah, thanks for coming, dude. Uh, you bet. I don't know if we've ever actually, have we ever been on stage at a jam? Because I've seen you at the jam in, in a whole bunch Maybe, of times. Maybe, but I'm running back and forth. Yeah, I don't know. I, I've seen you sound. play, and, mm -hmm. and definitely you always sound good, man. And oh, it's, thank you. Thanks. Yeah, yeah, and I know that you've... Uh, that you've been playing drums, you know, and doing your thing with that, but um, I'm always seeing you running sound. Right, at, at, right. Uh, at uh, Blue Room. Uh-huh, at the Jazz Museum, yep. Yeah, yeah. Um, for, for, those of, uh, for those people that don't really know you that well, give me, give me a you know, couple minutes on, on what you've done. Like, oh, boy. And stuff. Well, I grew up in a musical family. My, uh, my dad uh, had a country band, and so I played in that, so that was probably my first gig. Only brushes. He wouldn't let me play mm -hmm. sticks. And my mom was an opera singer, so she mm. toured, and then she did the church choir, and we had a thing called folk, folk mass. And uh, so I would play brushes in that, too. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I played a lot of brushes growing up. Anyway, uh, and my sister was a singer also. Mm. And so one year we won, like, most musical family in... in uh, in Missouri, because mm. my dad was playing, my, my mom was on tour with a singing group, and mm. my sister was singing college, and they were touring, and, and I won all state in percussion and stuff. So, oh, cool. So, uh, so it kind of started there. I started really young. I kept, like, I kept thinking I was getting new drum sets, but they were really my cousins and my mom would just clean the drum heads so they looked brand new. So I thought I had these new drum sets. But anyway, always banging on stuff. Had really great teachers in high school, in junior high, high school. I, man, I tell you, that is, uh, people call me Mr. Lucky, but man, I have had, I've been lucky to have the best teachers all, mm -hmm. the, all along the way that kind of always gave you good advice on not just, you know, playing the drums, but playing in a group and how to act and what, what you know, showing up on time, wearing the right clothes, all that kind yeah, of stuff, sure. you know, so that really helped. So, um, so I got to that first summer after high school, I got to uh, go to Europe with the uh, if you made all state, you kind of put your name in and you got split up into bands with kids from around the country and you got to go to Europe for three weeks. So I got to tour all through Europe yeah. and play. Wow. So that was the first time I got to go over there. And well, uh, not three weeks, it was a month because we did, I was playing timpani and we did 26 gigs in 30 days. Mm. That's a lot for That's an a lot orchestra. Of <laughs> so then I um, got a scholarship to UMKC, went there for three years doing percussion and jazz. There's a lot of infighting between the jazz department and the classical, but I was in the <laughs> middle because I was in both. And so I wanted to go to Berkeley. So I went to Berkeley School of Music in Boston and uh, graduated there, played around Boston a lot and met amazing friends and they're all side men that you know from albums and stuff and Layla Hathaway and and um, Abe Laboreal Jr. that plays with Paul McCartney and mm. tons of jazz guys and Jesse Williams my friend that's a bass player with Al Cooper and he subs with the Derek Trucks band and mm. <laughs> it's insane so uh, 
anyway, went to Berkeley, came back to Kansas City and did my master's in music here. And uh, I had one recording class, but graduated, went to, uh, uh, my wife got a job in LA, so went to LA and I did my recording internship there. Basically the idea was, what can I do to make a living in music? Mm-hmm. Uh, I had different jobs along the way, but my mom was teaching voice lessons. So in high school, like everyone's like, what was your first job? Mine was teaching drum lessons because mm-hmm. she had a student that her son wanted to take drums. And mom was like, why don't you, you want money? Why don't you do that for money, for gas money? I'm like, all right. So I didn't have to leave the house mm-hmm. and I got to, you know, teach the kid. And I still know those kids today, yeah, yeah. Or, you know? And, uh, so anyway, I've just, I've just always, whatever I do, whatever job I've had, record stores, music stores, mm-hmm. running sound, uh, have always been associated with music. Uh, so, Went to L.A. for a year. I had recorded at Red House Recording in Lawrence, Kansas, and I told the guys, hey, man, the studio sounds amazing. You know, if you ever want to sell it, let me know. And I was kind of joking. And a year later, we're in L.A., and I get this call, hey, Sam, do you still really want to buy this deal? I'm like, yeah. So we converted our home loan into a business loan and bought bought Red House Recording in Lawrence. So I owned that for eight years, my money pit in Eudora. But, like... Most of the guys that we've already or that we've been talking about have recorded out there. So uh, I sold that to the Get Up Kids in 2003, and through this whole thing, I've always played. I didn't get to practice as much as I wanted to before. I always ran sound. I've when you own a recording studio, it's same thing. You're like, what do I got to do to pay the rent? And when someone calls and said, Yeah, can you write a a jingle for my bank? You're like yeah, pays a thousand bucks. Okay, whatever you want, man. Mm-hmm. I'll figure out how to do that. Right. right. So I started writing music for commercials, and it was really commercial music was for videos. Like after I sold Red House, I got a job at Premier Studios, and I wrote. Starting then, I wrote music for John Deere for ten years. Mm-hmm. We wrote so much stuff that they don't really record anymore they you they keep using the same stuff over and over that we recorded but there were a lot of companies like that when i was a premier uh there was uh cessna and cobalt boats and cessna loved to do things in surround sound so that was a new challenge we had the first like full-on 5.1 surround studio recording studio in kansas or in the midwest Mm -hmm. and uh so we were doing all that and uh Recording bands out there, recorded Ken Lovern's first out there, OJT, and I play with Ken now at Green Lady. And and uh, so it's just this big circle of Kansas City, you know, connections. But uh, so that, <clears throat> I guess that kind of brings us up to started playing in rock bands. And mm. my friend, uh, uh, Gerald Dunn, is the manager at the Blue Room and was like, hey man, my sound man didn't show up, can you... I just started subbing, being the sound. I was like, I don't want to be a sound man, but okay. So I did it, and I, I subbed a lot. And then just a couple of years ago, he's like, would you do this full time, you know, be in charge of the audio? And I was like, sure. So so it's me, and I have two or three other guys that sub for me when I'm not there. Mm-hmm. and Because 
I'm a drummer first and I want to go play jazz or music or whatever, you know? So, so I, if I get called for a gig, I call a sub for running sound because I love, (laughs) I love playing the drums. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah. Yeah. So, So, man, you said a whole bunch of stuff there that was interesting. So (laughs) first of all, how was that? I thought it was interesting. You're talking about, uh, dad playing country and then mom opera yeah i thought that was interesting i mean yeah. obviously there's there's an obvious music connection there but uh did that do you think that gave you any sort of insight like a weird perspective that other people might not have i think so you know not not overtly and they never my family was never they didn't teach you stuff though i i was the youngest kid in this family of you wake up Saturday and no one's there. They all have stuff. Mm-hmm. Dad had gigs and mom's yeah. training a horse and my sister's busy gone. Yeah. So you're you everyone basically you pick what you want to do and you know, so yes, I think I think subconsciously definitely. And oh my man, my mom took us to New York. I think I was the first time I was in 4th grade. We went with her opera teacher from Pittsburgh State and uh, a couple other ladies and me and this little kid in my suit going to New York to go see opera Mm -hmm. but then they were like oh let's do some stuff for Sam so they took me to see The Wiz you know Mm -hmm. on Broadway if you know what you know Mm -hmm. The Wizard of Oz and uh, Pirates of Penzance with um, Linda Ronstadt and Gary whatever was from uh, WKRP in Cincinnati. Mm-hmm. So being a fourth grader and seeing that, man, that just blows your mind. Right. And then we went back a couple of years later and we saw Duke Ellington. Mm-hmm. And that, right, that's just a mix of what you're talking about where you have, they did uh, Sophisticated Ladies was this musical with Gregory Hines, who's tap dancing and singing. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, Kathleen Battle. So you've got like, opera singers singing jazz, you know, mm-hmm. and you've got a guy in the pit playing brushes the whole time, which I'm growing up in my dad's band, and he's like, mm-hmm. you know, play the beat, play brushes, don't, you know, you're, because I didn't know what I was doing. I was right. kind of learning, but at least I could do something with the brushes. So, yeah, I think I got those two worlds of that you have to be musical and things ebb and flow mm-hmm. with the classical and dynamics. And the country was like, you got to be solid and lay down the right. beat, you know. So yeah, man, I've, I've just every single person who's come on the show who's been gigging, every single one of them said they had music in the home. Yeah, every, every single one of them. Yeah, and, and it's been amazing to me. And so it sounds like, uh, I mean, my my parents made me, I guess, you know, but I ended up liking it anyway. So so they made me, but it wasn't, it didn't really feel like that. Yeah, you know, but I, but a lot of people have your same kind of story where. They were musicians, and it was just sort of kind of osmosis. Yeah, you know, like you said, it was yes. just around, and you just kind of picked up stuff that you didn't even realize. Right. And uh, I think a lot of times people talk about uh, they'll go to some college uh, regular like mu- music music appreciation college class yes. for non musicians, and they go, "Who's heard of Frank Zappa and the One Kid?" You know, and like. How do you know him? My dad played it. You know, it, you yeah. know, it's all that kind of stuff mm-hmm. where you're hearing opera, you're hearing all this extra yes. stuff, and mm-hmm. I'm sure that you know, I'm sure that influenced you. you didn't even know it. Yeah. Um, the the other thing you said that was interesting is, I am fascinated by everything to do with uh, 
with academia in regards to music at colleges. Mm-hmm. You were talking about the infighting. Yeah. Uh, of, like, I mean, would you be able to expound on that, like with the jazz department and the classical department? Because... Well, yeah. I mean, I mean if I you think, don't want to, you don't have to. Yeah. Well, it's the same thing. I guess I've heard stories that now it's kind of the same thing that was going on then where, I don't know why they do this, but they have donors... Or maybe donors will say, I want to give my money to the classical department or to the jazz oh, department. okay, yeah. And uh, this was, uh, you know, 86 to 89 was when I was at UMKC the first time. And uh, I think they picked up real quick that I, I had an aunt in town that was really influential. And uh, we would get the combo together and go, let's go play for... You know, for Aunt Helen, and she would donate, you know, some money. So then all the jet, all, not just her, but we would go out and play these shows for people for free, but it would encourage them to donate money. And that the UMKC was started as a as a conservatory that was just classical, you know. Yeah. So uh, I think I wish people would just get over that and just mm-hmm. call it music. And mm-hmm. uh, I think. Throughout the world, there have been a lot of strides in just breaking down those walls. But some somehow, you know, Kansas City is a very nice town, but it's a little behind on that kind of, you know, that it's okay. And really, the truth is, you're going to study classical and jazz and rock and anyway. If you want to be a better player, if you want to solo, you've got to study some classical scales that you're gonna then use in jazz or in blues or, you know, so you're gonna need that stuff anyway. That's what a lot of the really good players would say. Yeah. I've had some people on the show that would disagree with that and I disagree with them. I agree with what you're saying, you know, that you kinda kinda gotta dive into that eventually, right? I Mm -hmm. think, okay, uh, number one, once we get into the sound thing, I'll tell you, somehow, I don't know, it's just the way I grew up, but I've always been a listener. Everything, I think, being a musician, being a sound man, recording a band, all that stuff comes down to listening first. So then you can make a decision about mm-hmm. what's what you're involved in, what's going on yeah. in the moment, you know, staying. Right. Uh, but, you know, okay, I lost my train of thought. But anyway, but you, you know what I mean? That's mm-hmm. the first thing is listening. Oh, the other thing, I mean, with listening... And how, how it pertains to playing is I have this theory that every time you listen to something and you let your mind relax and just listen to what's going on, you know, mm-hmm. that is in your mind forever. And if you want to play it on violin or guitar or drums or whatever, you, it's just a matter of you accessing it and figuring out right. how to get to that. Mm-hmm. I think that every time you pick up your instrument, I don't care what anybody says. Every time you pick it up, you're going to get better, mm-hmm. you know, and all those different kinds of music are going to influence you, you know, so, mm-hmm. you know, I'll, I'll work on something and put it on Facebook and they're like, why are you playing that? I'm like, well, I play jazz gigs where you don't, you never know mm-hmm. what, what the next song is going to be, yeah. how fast, how slow. Mm-hmm. Hey, Sam, take a solo. And then you got a solo on a song that you barely know. And so you're gonna draw from some classical snare drum solos right. or some jazz song or blues song or whatever, you know. So yeah, I always find it funny with we've talked about this on the show a little bit about different genres and and I didn't even consider the whole money angle with the what you're talking about with the school, <clears throat> oh, yeah. but just in a in a different point about 
classical people looking down on all the little people, right? Yeah. Playing country yeah. and, you know, and then sometimes I would even argue that uh, country people do the same thing. You know what I'm stereotyping, well, but, but there's yeah. some people out there that just... Oh, you play jazz, you know, like oh, and that, that kind of that, stuff. You and, see that yeah. at all the jams around town, right? Oh, you know, and and jazz guys sometimes can get that way too. I mean, every genre's got and, their and people. And it's so you funny know? that you'll see a you'll see someone go, "Oh, that's that guy's playing jazz," and I'm like, "That dude is killing it." Mm-hmm. And what's funny is you see that person go up and play, and they're not, mm-hmm. <laughs> and you're like. You know what? You need to listen to more blues. Yeah. <laughs> so. Well, the dudes that, I mean, because I go to a lot of the blues jams in town, like a crap load of them, and, and when I go up and listen to, like, Chris Clark and some of these, you know, some of these just knuckleheads go down to the foundation, I'm like, oh, my God, you know? It's like, these guys are destroying these songs, you know? And then they're got, and then I go over to the jams, and they're like, they don't play real blues. I'm like please yeah you know what i mean it's that kind of stuff that drives me nuts is when they don't even understand like they've never even gone down to the foundation they're like they don't play real blues i'm like really really you know i'm like so i don't know that that kind of stuff just kind of oh boy you go in that room and you can just tell it's a vibe right yeah it's just the history is all right there and blue room's the same way i mean any of the jazz clubs are the same i mean those those guys you get matt hopper and some of these people playing Mm -hmm. these bluesy stuff i'm like oh my god yeah. You know, they just like kick the crap out of it, you know? And yeah. I don't know. That that always drives me nuts. And that that's, I'm, I'm sure you and I are very similar in that way. It sounds like it that we're, you know, because you were talking about listening. Now mm-hmm. you, you, if it sounds good, it sounds good. It does. You know, yeah. I mean, it like, and there is, I think there is some stuff that gets too simple, you know, and, and it's just kind of like just catering crap. Like maybe once in a while rap tune will be like that where this is just, this is a two chord tune, and mm-hmm. it's, there's not really anything interesting about it, and it's not that all rap is, but you know what I'm saying? Like there, even though that sounds good, yeah, yeah. What, you know what I mean? There's two record simple. label producer got involved in this or whoever. Okay, that's a nice song. Now we're you know, dumb it down and make mm-hmm. it release, you know, right. so we can make more money. Yeah, and and another thing you said that was interesting is uh, we haven't talked about so so you did some commercial jingles, huh? Oh yeah, yeah. So so tell tell me a little bit about that because I don't really know anything about. I that. still do it. Yeah, and it's morphed. I mean, okay. So I bought the studio in '96, so that was really the end of that whole like jingle thing, and people were like tired of it. There was a guy that in Dallas that would book a motel room and set up all these clients, and they would come in, and he's like, "Okay, what's the name of your car dealership, and what's your special?" Mm-hmm. And he would make the same song over and over and over, and you'd hear him on. And so most of the clients, almost, I, I hardly ever got a jingle. There was, well, I take that back. I wrote a jingle for Cuties Oranges mm-hmm. three years ago. That's fun. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and my friend John Lenati, who's a ba- blues bass player that plays with uh, Billy Bats, mm-hmm. he sang and played and uh, play guitar. And uh, so. So, like in that instance, Cuties sent me these words, and I'm trying to write this song, and I get on this call, and you realize it's a conference call, and you don't know that there's like 13 people on the mm-hmm. call, That's you know, funny. and I'm asking them, they're like, okay, I'm like, well, what are you looking for? And they're like, and I'm like, please don't say I want something peppy. And they're like, we want something peppy. Yeah. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> like, 
is it peppy rock or country or bluegrass or reggae? And uh, I think people call me, uh, they want, when they want something silly and simple, they call me. <laughs> it seems like the ones that, that I've gotten, the, the ones that were accepted. But anyway, so Cuties had this whole script and you're sitting there looking at these words and the first verse is say, you know, 40 syllables. And the second verse is 10, you know, and it's like, how am I going to make a song? But we did it with a reggae and I talked John into doing it and he, he, he just nailed it. Yeah. So. I bet the, I bet the, just the products that you get would just crack me up. Like, oh yeah. Like cuties oranges. I mean, cuties just, oranges? You know, some ran, uh, what'd you say? A random car dealership or whatever. Oh yeah. I mean, yeah. That yeah. Crack me well, up. my big ones were cuties oranges, frontier broadband, which I don't know if you've heard of. My mom has it in Florida. Mm -hmm. It's, uh, I forgot what it's part of, but it's a uh, it dish network. Yeah. Um, right. so, you know, it's for, uh, it's for when you need internet, like in Montana and you don't have any that you're using a satellite to get, you know, but yeah. So, so I keep calling my mom. Yeah. You know, I'm cuties and she's like, Oh, that's nice. And then she's like, I'm at the grocery store and they're playing your song. I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> so, so, you know, so you're like, uh, yeah, that's right. So that's right. So Mario Lazoya sang the cute, the, uh, frontier broadband or he whistled, he whistled the whole thing. Oh, they, and, uh, and I called him, I go, man, I'm at my mom's in Florida and they're playing the Frontier Broadband. He's like, you're kidding me. I thought it would only be in like Montana. Right, that's so, funny. Yeah. Well, like, cause, cause we'll listen to that and uh, you know, on the radio or something. Right. And you, you'll hear something, something, something survived down and then and then in I-35, you know, right. they'll, they'll, you know, they'll, yeah. they'll just do these silly look. Like I would think. I would think writing for that would be like a totally different like mindset. Oh, that than, and than just the one like you just tune. sang. Yeah. If you think about, it, that's the same melody line mm -hmm. as as a you know pizza place in mm -hmm. Lawrence, Kansas, and a you know it's 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 silly, but but I guess what it comes back to is like it's same thing with playing in a band where you have to figure out what your role is and what they want, what mm. people want and how, you know, that's how you get the gig. And they don't, you don't like, Oh, let's call Sam Platt. It's, it's all these ad agencies. They, you know, the company will go, we want a jingle and you know, you bid on it and, mm. and they'll, they'll say, yeah. okay, Sam, we want you to just do a 30 second, just a quick and dirty, and then they they go you know they go through and they pick ones so the ones that we you know then we do a finished version or you know but how I I am so used to doing commercials that I I do stuff really fast mm -hmm. and I do it in Pro Tools so I can always go back there right. and change so most of what I've done is pretty much ninety percent there anyway and and we edit stuff so Frontier we got that because. We were the only one that really edited the whole commercial into the song. So we'll sing the song, and then there's 20 seconds of just the background music, and you're like, What's right, that? where well, they're just the talking. Yeah, yeah, right. right, that's yeah. the talking moose yeah. in his in his RV. <laughs> I'm serious, you know. So the so talking I moose in his RV. You know? Yeah, that's funny. Right, that's funny. So yeah. I'm like, yeah. you know, Mario, you're a talking moose in this scenario. <laughs> He's like, oh, great, thanks. <laughs> well, that, that's funny because like. 
because that's something that I've thought about a lot with like radio mm-hmm. is 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 the is everything's about the time. Oh yeah, you know what I mean. And like when oh, you're yeah. writing a song, it's not at all about the time. You're you're about verse, chorus, variage, you know. Right. But, but there, like you just said, you you have your twenty seconds, and then you have your one line or whatever the thing mm-hmm. is of of the actual singing part. Yeah. And then you've got to fit these words in, but it's it's all about the time. I, yeah. I, see, that's I I mean I'd have to get my brain into that mode. Oh yeah. Thing. It's it's all about getting that script and like when dick fatherly was alive he was a genius that he would get these scripts and he's like i don't know what these writers are thinking because <laughs> there is no way that this can be read in 60 seconds right yeah so he would just sit there and with a pencil red pencil and slash 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 and redo it you know so that and then even then he would get done and the producer would come in and we'd pick the best takes and then i would still have to go in pro tools and do time expansion and compression to make it nail 30 right. seconds, right? Yeah. Or or 25 seconds with a five second bump at the end, right. you know, so. Anyway. Well, the Micro Machine guy. You yeah. remember that guy? Oh, right. Oh, yeah. yeah. You just, you and that's just, all, yeah, that's yeah. all. They get him to say it as consistently and kind of fast as he can, and then I put it in Pro Tools and speed up. That's why yeah. a lot of times it sounds really warbly. That's because we put it in Pro Tools mm. and it just sounds stupid. That, program that we use to compress it sounds right. stupid but anyway so i try i would rather go in and take some words out and chat do ed- edit it so it won't sound so warbly you know right. but well that that's like i mean people writing a book and and probably lyrics would work just like that too where a lot of times people just they just keep talking yeah you know and it's it's like kind of a topic sentence kind of a thing uh-huh. What's the four sentences? That, you know the paragraph, right? That that sums this up. You've got five. Yeah. Right. You need one. Yeah. You know that that's probably what you're doing is obviously you're editing and cutting, but they're trying to put all this information. Well, you, where like, you know, address. What the hell are we selling? Yes. Right. Right. Your sure. jingle at the end, and yeah. then right, and that's it. And <laughs> you know, and yeah. maybe yeah. maybe one little tiny funny thing or something i mean but really right. and that's I mean, is what, that what we, you're looking for kind of well i mean everything's different a lot of these national ones they are a little hipper you know so they're right they'll try to do things more subtly and maybe there's a bumper at the end or they'll they'll show the address and not say it or the web address whatever you know right. so so there's different ways to to deal with it but uh i was starting to put it back to music yeah it is. <clears throat> well you were talking about taking you know that happens a lot in songs also where you have like five ideas and he, the producer is trying to get you to boil it down to one. Yeah. I remember we went out on the road with Mike Matheny and we were in the van and he just, I don't know, Chris Cheek was asking him a question about improvising. He, he's like, man, I, I take the Eric Clapton school of improvising and that's, I'm looking for that one note that's going to work through the entire song first hmm. and then he works off of that right hmm. so that's i thought that was pretty cool that that's like he's taking a whole song you know jazz tune with all these changes and all this stuff and he's looking just for that one note that's gonna be hip that works through hmm. the whole tune hey he's not gonna just play that but right. that's like the center that gives him a spot to start from you know oh yeah so, i like the theme yeah 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 yeah, yeah and they'll they'll do that i mean that's the hook. Yeah. Right in a country tune. Yeah. Right? They have this. Exactly. You know. Mm-hmm. Da 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 da. 
Yeah. You know, and then they, they put it five times throughout the song, and then you're humming that stupid thing. Yep. Ten exactly. hours later, and then yeah. before you go to sleep, yeah. Well, that's weird, man. Yeah, that's that would get me in a totally different headspace from my regular writing of, like, 13-minute instrumentals. There and you you're go. going yeah. down to 20-second commercial. Oh, yeah. That would, like, yeah. blow my mind. Um, so so with your with your whole sound stuff that you're doing, um, what... I, I'm always curious, what is your, like, priority when you're dealing with sound? Is there, like, one specific thing? Obviously, you want it mixed, right? I mean, uh-huh. that, that's obvious, you know, but is there is there one specific thing that you're kind of making sure that you have every time that you... Well, are... you, you have... It's two parts. You have... Uh, you... Okay. It, uh, it, it's very similar to being in the studio, but... You're trying to make the musicians feel comfortable first, mm-hmm. and then you want it to sound good in the house. So you, so first you'll do a tr- uh, you know a sound check and be like you know everybody gets something in their monitor you know see what you need mm-hmm. okay you got it how you want it okay so then like blue room is a very small room and <clears throat> it can't be that loud because we do have limitations because it's part of the museum of volume level, right? right? So same thing happens in a church a lot. So then when you've got loud monitors or say we have your guitar amp over there, but I got a mic it also, you're now you have to deal with that mix in the house and you have to EQ, you still, you have to use your ears and you have to listen and you have to go through because when you have a really loud monitor that someone's actually hearing out in the house, it, it messes mainly with the mid-range EQ, so you have to do a mm. lot of weirdo, you know, EQs in the house, in the house mix. Mm. So that, because really what, like at the Blue Room, we have an acoustic piano, and we really want it just to sound like an acoustic piano, right. you know? We don't want it to sound real tinny like a player piano or too much reverb. We just want it to sound natural, but we have to make it loud enough. So now you're talking about, you got three microphones on the piano, trying to Oh, really? Make that Is there happen. three? I, yeah, wow. I put three. Yeah. And so you've got some phasing issues you have to deal with. You got, now you got the bass player, his amp is feeding into those mics. The oh, piano right. player wants to hear that monitor. So now you've got, you've got the mics that are picking out the piano and the sound of the monitor coming out. Mm. So you see what I'm saying? Yeah. So then that's when, so you have to do all that technical mumbo jumbo, but still make it sound great to the audience throughout the room. Mm-hmm. So you'll see me walking around a lot because I'm trying to like, make sure it sounds good everywhere, right. you know? So yeah, that's cool. So yeah. I want it to sound good for the audience, not hurt anyone's ears, but it's, you know, it sounds enjoyable. It sounds mixed, but also make it comfortable for the musicians on stage. Yeah, I've always, I mean, when we were talking about different genres of Indigo, and like, I always find that it's it's funny when you get really good players on stage, it's like, they make your guys' life so easy. Oh, yeah. You know? I mean, they're not up to eight on Isn't their that hand. Funny? And they're just Isn't like... Isn't that funny? You know, I mean, they're usually like... I know I, I've been accused of this many times at Blues Jams. They're like, dude, turn up. Yeah. yeah. I mean, everybody at the Blues Jam always tells me that. They're like, turn up. And I'm like, okay. You know, like, and because I'm, you know, I'm maybe hyper 
concerned sensitive. with that. Yeah, uh-huh. hypersensitive. Maybe, right. maybe even too sensitive, you know, to, mm-hmm. to make sure that I'm not pissing all the other musicians right. off. Right. And also the audience, you know. Yeah. A mind being a pretty bright instrument in general, too, is part of that. But, but like, so with the sound, they, they already know like especially jazz guys in general are, are very sensitive. You know, I mean, they're yes. musically sensitive. So yep. they're, they're going to already be playing with an insane amount of dynamics. That's and, right. And so mm-hmm. like, and so the thing that I've been, that I found really funny is that when, when people are, when people like at big festivals and stuff, or even in, in big rooms, not knucklehead specifically, but rooms like an, the size of yeah. knuckleheads people always just like blast the bass yeah you know and and obviously at the blue room you never hear that right you know and and again i my opinion is you know deandre manning's up there he's not gonna blast his bass right. you know or, or any of the great bass players in town right. you know like what like is there a reason why everybody does that is it just like trying to get the girls all excited or like i have no idea and I don't know if it's, I mean, you can hear it, I can hear it most, you know, plus you've got subs on the stage. And if you think about half of sound is vibration. So, you know, you've got a sub that's sitting on the floor and it's, it's vibrating the floor, it's vibrating the stage. So, so it's there. I don't know why, you know, I don't know if there is part of your hearing that you start to you know, I you definitely lose high end. I don't know if you can lose some low end, but I guess it's possible if you got that too much bass right. all the time. But yeah, I I think that's just something that happens. With, yeah, or or is that I mean, or seriously, is that just you know amateur soundmen? I mean, that's not to, something. Not to I'm not gonna out, say but, amateur, yeah. but because they are getting paid, right. but so that makes them a professional. But <laughs> but I but I would uh, say it's definitely something that. To work on, yeah, you know, and uh, but but it is like with a touring. My my friend Scott Ralston has run sound for three eleven for years, for mm. years and years, back to their after their first album, so their second album, Grassroots. He he helped record that, and he's been on the road with them ever since then. And every room is different, man. And he's got mm. he he used to do it all by himself. He ran the monitors and the mains, and he had this bicycle he got in france and he'd ride back and forth on this 1950s looking bicycle Mm -hmm. fixing the monitors and now he's got like three kids working with him with ipads and they'll go all around the room and come back and show him stuff and he's like ah okay you know Mm -hmm. so you know because when you're doing a big show like that you're kind of you got a lot going on at the board and it's hard for you to do what i do where you walk around and you can listen and go oh i need to fix this or change that you know yeah mm-hmm. uh, you know so so it, it's difficult but i think there is another weird thing between musicians and sound men <laughs> and it's both parties are guilty man mm-hmm. where like maybe sound men think that you really don't have to study music or or you know they just you want oh i listen so i know how to uh, to run sound and then you have musicians that I've you know they're like oh man that guy stunk and he did, and it's like okay wait a minute we gotta there was some stuff going on be, both of you you know you want your monitor 
louder than everybody else. You want you louder than everybody else in the monitor. Mm-hmm. So the other guys in the band are like, all I hear is You're right. trombone or something in their monitor, you know, which isn't going to be comfortable for them. Right. And then the sound man's like, man, the trombone's louder and everything. So, I, you know. So anyway, yeah, it's... It's all of this, what we're talking about is a balancing act. Mm-hmm. It's really, it's a balancing act to pay the rent and not have to go get a regular job so that you're not spending all your time working and you can spend more time practicing and working on your craft. It's a balancing act between being behind the board and being, I mean, I, especially the blue room. <clears throat> it happens a lot where I'll be running sound and they'll be like, come out and play. And I'll go out and play and go, man, this sounds completely different on stage. Like, I can't hear this at all. How are these guys even playing? Like, I, mm-hmm. like is the piano loud enough? Oh, yeah, it's fine. They're like, dude, for years we've never been able to hear the piano, so it's okay. But, mm-hmm. but you know, I still like, oh, man, I want you to be able to hear, you right. know, hear what's going on. Let's fix something that's been happening for years. <laughs> yeah. Probably yeah. Here. yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, the, like, two things you mentioned. One... There is totally a thing with sound men and musicians, isn't there? I mean, oh, it's yeah. this just funny oh. thing that, that yeah. oh, the sound guy, you know, whatever. And then, like, I know this has happened to me a couple times where we'll, like, be mad at the sound guy. And he's like, dude, your, your preamp was buzzing the whole show. You know what I mean? Like, like the, the cable, and, and that, that's on the musician. Your equipment sucks. You know, like they sound. Yeah, you but know, he needs to tell you that it's sound checks. Right. Try to switch it out or something. But, right, but, but but my point, I guess, is that like we're bitching at the sound guy, right. you know, and he's like, right. dude, you're, you know, you're trash, well, you know, like, well, and he's and not wrong. You know, that's like, one thing I wanted to bring up, and maybe I touched on, but recording bands and being a sound man, uh, the other, like, you want it to sound good, but you're part of your job is you're there every week, so you want to make people you want to make the musicians feel comfortable on stage mm-hmm. you know because if you're not playing five nights a week it you're and even guys that play five nights a week are going to get nervous coming down there but if you're playing a gig once a month you're going to be nervous going in this situation so you're already kind of tense you're excited about playing and you're nervous and then you do the, you know, you're dealing with the sound man. You can't hear this, and you don't want to piss him off. But you, you know, so, you know. Yo, sure. Yeah, you want to try to make them. You, you want to make yeah. them feel comfortable, right. so they can, so that they can, you know, mm-hmm. d- get the best performance. Yeah, and the other thing that I've noticed is I think you were mentioning about kind of the different rooms and stuff, and how, you know, you go outside. And that's a whole different deal, you oh, yeah. know, with sound escaping everywhere yeah, immediately, exactly. and like so everything's mic there, you right? Know? Yeah. Now, now, like, so somewhere like, okay, so Blue Room in general has generally low ceil, you know, it's not really high ceilings like a church and stuff, and right? Like, and then you deal with like carpet everywhere, and say, so, you know, where it's dampening, and oh, you mean Blue Room? Well, just a oh. place. I'm just oh, mentioning a place. It, yes, just, yes, just yes. an example of a place. And then you go over some a place like Llewellyn's, where you're standing on this hollow box. Yes. And then you've got you know yeah. church ceiling basically yes. up. When you have a sort of a boomy room like that where it's high ceilings, uh-huh. do you, what would be 
the sound objective there? Would it, would it be less lows or right. like, is that? Yeah, uh, yeah, it, yeah, or finding out what that frequency is. But yeah, I mean, exactly. That's what I was getting to with the 311 thing is that every room's different and you have to kind of, you're listening to the instrument, but the instrument going through a mic, through speakers in this room. Yeah. So half of what you're hearing is the the sound bouncing off the walls and the different, like you said, the hollow stage. Yes, we would love to go into Llewellyn's and, and you know, fill it full of foam and, and, and sand or whatever right, to deaden yeah. the stage. But, you know, if that's not going to happen, then what do you do to do Yes. You have to go through and find out what is that frequency that's jumping out too much and try to pull mm -hmm. it back. And that's what I still, like a Blue Room, I try to make it a, acoustic as possible. Like every whoever wants a mic, I'll give them a mic. But if a saxophone is really loud out in the house, you'll come no, back I, and look at my yeah. board. It's barely on. Like I gave him a mic and it's in the monitor, but I'm going through and I'm like, mixing i want it to sound i want you to be able to hear the drums have no mics you know maybe maybe if it's a funk band i'll put a bass uh, a mic on the kick but really all the other mics are picking up the drums so it's just a different you it's playing in the blue room is like playing in your living room you know you can't yes. play yeah. really loud and you know but like you said, playing in uh, you know outside at Knuckleheads is a totally different deal, man. Right? Yeah, yeah. And that—that's the other thing I was going to ask too about just volume in general. You know, kind of like the bass question that I asked is that it seems like everybody always wants to, especially at the rock type venues. Again, this isn't going to happen at the Green Lady or Blue Room. I mean, right. they're—they're—they've got it pulled down. And my my buddy that I play with, Scott Lane. He is intense about that. He's like, do he's like, we are not going to be a loud band. Yes. And he's and he's he's like obsessed with that. And I think for good reason. Well, and, and Jan Faircloth is great yeah. about that. He's always been and I think you have to it's a very difficult thing to learn. Every time I play outside at Knuckleheads, I'm I'm playing too loud and it takes me a few songs to figure out, oh but if you can if you can almost go into a philosophy of wherever I'm playing, I'm gonna do. I'm gonna play my thing. If I'm a hard hitter, I'm gonna hit hard. If I'm gonna, mm. I mean, maybe yes. At a smaller venue, you need to figure out how to play quieter. But for guys like Jan and I, and that don't really hit that hard anyway, it's like there comes your brushes. You're yeah, joking about earlier. Stay early within. Or, yeah. Stay within your comfort zone because, like, if I go sub at at Knuckleheads. And I'm trying to play, I'm not a hard rock player. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to play loud for a set, and then I'm like, worn out, you know. But if I just stay within, mm -hmm. I saw Mike, oh, I always forget his last name, but I'll think of it. But the original drummer from the uh, Fabulous Thunderbirds, mm -hmm. oh my God, Mike Buck. Mm -hmm. This guy, he looks like Mel Lewis up there playing jazz. But the kick and snare are solid as a rock. Mm -hmm. And his right hand is just dancing on the ride cymbal like a jazz mm -hmm. guy. And he doesn't use his hi-hat for timekeeping. His hi-hat is his crash cymbal. Mm -hmm. He just like, psh, it's there every once in a while. He looks like the most comfortable guy playing the drums you've ever seen. And it sounds amazing and it grooves so hard. Mm -hmm. And he's just so relaxed. You have to like figure out I don't care if I'm playing in a stadium or Charlie Watts, if you ever watch him playing. He's just so relaxed. 
He's not hitting hard. He's like, you know what? They're going to mic all this up. I'm going to do my thing, do what I do, and let the let the mics and the sound do system. Do the job. Yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah, right. Instead exactly. Of you, and that, that's, that kills me, too, because, like, miking drums, uh, just it just never makes any sense to me. Right? Sandstone, yeah. Right? I mean, Verizon, you go yeah. to Sprint Center, okay. You know, like, but I don't know. Yeah, I mean, maybe you guys can set me straight on this, but, like, inside even inside knuckleheads right like the inside mm -hmm. inside one i don't well, know I, like, I understand it, like, it's like you know like you don't know if the guy's going to switch the brushes but i would say you know in there it's big enough the, room mike and all but bring the other thing is some a lot of those places blue room and knuckleheads too have this thing where it's all going through a system and it might be feeding a stream or a speaker outside or a speaker that's in a different part of the club that's a good point okay yeah so but yeah. you had a sound man what i want what i would rather you do you mic everything you get the level set correctly nothing's distorting everybody's got a monitor and then yeah you don't have to have the symbols like killing in a room yeah. like that start low man bring your faders down and then you know get to where you can hear the vocals first number one then you know start bringing up piano guitar all that kind of stuff but but yeah it's very easy for everybody to go i want more of this or whatever but yeah you know you have to kind of just it's like jan playing light blues drums mm -hmm. in a very large room you have to stick to yeah. your guns and be like nope this is what i'm doing this is why i got the gig and i'm gonna stay true to myself right. you know so yeah, that and and Jan came on the show. He came and did a dinner interview on the show, and he I have always liked uh, his his approach, and he's just, he's another one of those drummers that gets the touch thing. You yes. know, I mean, he just oh, yeah. he understands. You know, I don't need to, you know, two clubs for feet and like you know pound the shit out of this right. you know, crash. And You're like, right, and he he does a fabulous job. I think most of the most of the jazz drummers in town are pretty good at that too in general oh, yeah. you know they're they know what they're doing in, in regards to just pounding yeah and, i've been working on it green lady with ken i've been working on like the weekends okay so like the first half of the gig is really quiet so you, i'm right. playing my cymbals that are like nice and quiet and stuff and then the last half of the gig is just everyone's so loud the people talking and stuff are louder than us mm -hmm. and it's like i don't want to bash so I'm working on like how can I play intensely but not loud. Right. So everyone's like, man, it looks like you're just killing that cymbal, but it's not hurting my ears. I'm like, mm -hmm. yep, yep, that's what I'm trying to do. Yeah, yeah it doesn't always work, but right. you know. But yeah, yep. Well, that's... the key the key is is that you, is that you're at a point and you or you've probably been here at a while where you can adjust. Yeah. Oh you know? yeah. And we we noticed that a lot with the kind of jammer guys, you know, and I'm, I'm sorry to say, but some of the guys at the blues jams, they got just one gear, yeah. you know, and they, they can't come bring it up or down, yeah. you know, well. You well, know? and like I said, that started from the beginning of my dad going, oh, dude, yeah. like you're getting loud and the time's going all over the place. You got to calm down right. and bring it down. And right. That's got to be some of your classical coming out too. Cause, oh, yeah, you know, a little bit. Because that is... Cause we are kings of that in classical. I mean, you have this kind of dynamics in classical. Absolutely. I mean, it's it's oh, really yeah. loud, but we bring it really quiet. Yeah. And uh, say obviously in opera, they would be you know doing that all day. Mm -hmm. 
uh, when rock sometimes, and if you play a lot of rock, you can not have to deal with that as much. Well, and, and you're, you know, you know, if you're rock radio, you're trying to, you're working on consistency and right. stuff like that. So, yeah. you know, so, yeah. Right. It's a... It's a balancing act. I guess right. that's my that's my go to thing for the night. <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah, you were you were talking about finding work and fi- figuring it out, you know. And, and if you got this guy wants you to do jingles and you just kind of deal with it and it's fine, and then sound and drums or whatever. And do you like? I've talked a lot about a lot. I've I've gotten a lot of different perspectives on this question at, on the show so far as at school the guy would tell you one of the bass instructors was telling us that like if you really want to go for this you need to figure out a way to like sort of like be in your parents basement for a year and literally practice for a year yeah you don't get a job you just you just go for it and then after a year of serious work then you're like you know yeah. head and shoulders above everybody else and then you go for it yeah i've heard other people say though that are more like entrepreneurial oriented where they say, no, 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 go get a day job, you know, and, and it kind of figure it out until then, right. You know, and they, they kind of go a total other route with it. Um, what, uh, what's, what's your opinion of that? Or, or do you have an opinion? Well, about- what I did and what I'm, I don't know if maybe we're just hard headed or what, but basically like I was saying before, my, my philosophy is just whatever is connected to music. If I can do something to make money and it's connected to music, mm-hmm. then I'm going to do that because, um, uh, I just, uh, I just, I mean, I saw my dad do that where you're working. He was, he and his brothers owned a company and he would hide this little Casio keyboard under his desk, right? Because <laughs> he never had time to practice. He had to mm. do the books and stuff. Mm. And uh, so so my idea is that, you know, if I'm working at a record store, then I can hear, listen to records and get paid. If I'm running sound, I'm, you know, you know I've, I'm hearing it from people going, man, I think like you running sound is really helping your playing because you're listening so much. Mm. And it's like... Yeah, yeah, I have to listen, and I'm getting right. paid to listen. So there are all these things that go into making you a better musician, but there's just nothing getting no, nothing beats shedding and playing a gig. You know, playing gigs. Uh, Pat Metheny told us at a clinic at Berkeley, like his idea is that one gig is worth like six or eight hours of practicing because hmm. you can go home and shed on something. And you have to do that. You have to do that. Right. Don't don't let people... I, I have a few friends that I really love, but they're like, yeah, man, we don't need to practice. Just It's all about figuring it out on the road or on the gig. And I'm like, you got to shed that, buddy. You know, so, so it, it is just two parts of it. It's where you've got to put in that time, no matter how you do it. And you can do it. What, what I... I'll just go ahead and give you my little trick. I practice in the car. Mm-hmm. So I live out in the country and I drive here to your house and I always have a stick in the seat so I can drive and I can maybe tap a little bit or I'm listening mm-hmm. to the radio going, okay, what can I get out of this tune or I'll flip. You know, it's so great in Kansas City that we have so many stations that we can hear the blues, we can hear jazz mm-hmm. and you can sit there and figure out throughout the day, I can listen to this station in the morning, 
the station late at night and get to hear, you know, jazz stuff that I need to work on. But, you know, if you have that luxury where you can be like, I'm going to take a year and just shed, heck yeah, go for it. Mm -hmm. But, you know, at some point you're going to get to this where you've got to pay the rent and do all those things and you've got to figure out how to get your practice time in and do all those other things. So, so that's what I do is I, I sneak it in there mm -hmm. a lot and I figure out different things to work on and I definitely don't practice as much as I should. I wish I did more and I wish I had the patience to sit down for longer periods of time but basically, I get an idea in my head of what I want to work on that day. And I'll maybe check it out on YouTube, and I'll take it out to the drums and play along with it mm -hmm. in my practice room yeah. or in the studio. And then go out the rest of my day. And, but really, you know, I'm, I'm getting in almost an hour every day. There's days where I'm playing doubles. And like, I, like Friday, I played... 6 p.m. to 1.30 a.m., so I probably didn't even get an hour in that day, sure. but but my shoulders kind of bother me, so I got to figure out how to do this another balancing act of, like, being able to play the gig and not physically it break down on me while I'm, you know. Right. But, but you know, I mean, you, you've got to practice. you got to play gigs so you can interact and see what it's like to play with other people, mm -hmm. and you got to listen. Sure. Yeah, yeah. That's I, I heard I heard Dave Chappelle say this one time, and he was he, his dad was asking him if he's if he really wants to do this comedy thing or whatever, and how will you know when it's good enough or what you know? His, his dad was kind of asking that question. He was like, "Well, I think if I and he said if I can make enough money gigging, then that's better than being a teacher." Yeah, you know, and he was just talking about like a school teacher, regular right. English or something, right. and that, and he was like, "That's a really mature attitude." You know, he his was dad like, said that? "Yeah, his dad was like, well, yeah, because he was like, he was because I mean, he's he's ready to go into stand up comedy, like that's gonna happen, right? Yeah. You know, it was it was so absurd, but his dad's like, "Hey, if you have that kind of attitude, then I think you should do it." You know, well, and that's kind of your philosophy. It yeah, sounds like Michael is, Warren was in medical school at mm -hmm. KU. He's and a great he got, drummer. He got so many gigs that he's like, I'm I'm just going to do this until like I have to go back to medical school or whatever. Mm -hmm. Ken Levern is a lawyer. Yeah. He's a lawyer, man. He and I were in music school mm -hmm. together and somehow he was finished another degree pre-law and was like, I'm going to law school. And then he comes back and has lessons with Everett Devan and he's like playing with Ida McBeth and he's like, I don't have... I can fix his ticket for you, but I don't have time to really practice law. So, you know, yeah. it happens a lot. Yeah, sure. And another thing you said too that I've I've argued, and this this happens a lot with like the country style guys, the 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 non-trained musicians, where we have this argument about gig time and practice time. You yeah. know, you were talking about that how they're like. Well, you can't learn, you know, basically you can't learn anything in the practice room. You'll learn it all at the gig and, and they're, they're, they're not 100% wrong because there's stuff that you can't learn in the practice room. Right. I mean, the nervousness and yeah. that. But it's like, to me, it's like, 
doing a speech. I mean, you, you've got to eventually go practice the speech before you get up there. Right. Right. right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like, and, well, and when Fred Wickham's like, we're going to go play this gig with Donnie Thompson from the Ozark Mountain Daredevils. Mm-hmm. I'm practicing. Yeah. I am going to practice. I am not going to show up on stage and suck in front of that guy. You know? You know? Yeah. So if I'm going to play with Donnie, I want to play with him. I don't want to be like... Uh, oh, I'm just freaking out about what I'm doing because when you're spending all your time on the bandstand, like trying to figure out whether you're speeding up or slowing down, you're not listening. Yeah. And you're, uh, you know, you have the opportunity to play once in a lifetime or whatever with this guy who's, yeah. you know, played with everyone, and you want to be able to hear him and see what hear what he's doing. You know. Mm-hmm. I think that's a difference too of the in the jazz classical kind of area where we're somewhat, well, this is for sure in classical, we're really precision oriented, you know? Oh, yeah. and, and then in now you go over to the, again, I'm stereotyping, sorry guys, but the, you know, maybe the blues country rock kind of area where it's all about feel, you know, and your yeah. attitude and like, and then, so maybe that's where there's a disjunct between me and them where, you could maybe argue that they're not as worried about the precision. They, they're, it's more about the feel of the band, and maybe even the listening part is that they're, and well, so they're not, wor- they're not as worried. That, that's what I'm worried about. Right. I right. want it to sound really good. I don't want to miss any notes. I want to hit oh, on the cues. I want to, yes. you know, that's what I care about. But like, that's just not on their top two priority levels. You know, they right. they have a different set of priority levels, which is why I think they that comes back to the gigging why they're so obsessed with making sure you learn stuff at the gig rather than the practice. I mean, is, is that right? Or oh yeah. Well, no, you're right. But I, I'll have, I'll t- this is uh, inductive reasoning, but this is my, this is my story about playing classical is I, you know, I was playing at school. I did all that stuff and playing 20th century music. None of it's making sense to me. The, the conductor is giving me scores to look at. And until like, for the 20th time, he said, you need to go to the library and listen to this. And I finally went to the library and sat down with mm-hmm. a couple of different recordings of these pieces with the score. It made sense. Yeah. You know, and I didn't have to sit there and count 150 bars between triangle beats because now I know the piece of music and I know where the triangle part comes in and why it's there and what's happening, mm-hmm. you know, rather than one, two, three, four, yeah, two, right, two, right. three, you know? So, right. so I, I think that's a, a case where listening makes all the difference of yeah. where, you know, because even in the orchestra, you have to play as a group, mm-hmm. you know, you have to, you may play every single note exactly right. But if you're, not listening to the person next to you and you're not phrasing the same way they are, it's not going to sound right. Sure. So. Did you do a lot of timpani too? Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah that yeah. was my main thing. It was timpani, timpani seems fun to me. Like It seems like just oh, yeah. a totally different you know, animal. Well, at UKC, they would imitate the director and would be, Sam! Because timpani is like, if you hit a wrong note, it's so big, or it's, you know, if it's not in tune... Everybody knows it, you know, right. so you can't hide anywhere, but, uh, yeah, it, it is fun, but yeah, I, I definitely, I, I, 
timpani, I have applied that the most to the drum set. Yeah, that, yeah. yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. yeah, I mean the snare drum a lot. Uh, I mean that's, pro I guess snare drum more, but timpani to me, you know, you had to do the the uh, complicated stuff of snare drum, but you had to really be more musical mm -hmm. about how you hit the drum to get the tone. Right. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it's, it's, it's very hard. melodic too because you have right. you know like four timpani and changing sure. notes. Yeah, I mean, you got to really, because again, I don't play percussion, but I would imagine, I mean, there's there's a spot that sounds bad. Oh, yeah. Right? I mean, and you, you got to find a, I'm sure there's sort of an area there, oh, there of, is. Of, give, of give a little bit, Absolutely. you know, but like at the edges or something, I mean, I don't even know what I'm talking about, but I'm sure there's a spot well, yeah, there. Yeah, you can't hit really... the middle of the timpani. That's the dead oh, part. Oh, really? That's yeah. the dead part. Oh, yeah, you got to hit weird. it. You go in a certain however many inches from the edge to, mm -hmm. and you're looking for that sweet spot I'm sure yeah exactly and it changes for the size but how i learned how to tune timpani was from tuning my dad's guitar so much mm. sitting there with a the piano or yeah. a or a getting finally getting an actual tuner but just a little pitch bite right. you know and tuning the guitar that helped with the pedal going okay i gotta find D flat or F sharp or whatever, right. you know, I got to find that note. And if you know the song, then you know, oh, my note is with the trombones and they're, they're playing the same note. Right. So it's in tune. Yeah, sure. That kind of thing. Yeah, that's cool, man. I mean, I'm really glad I don't do it anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I can get a lot away with a lot more mistakes on drum set. <laughs> yeah. Well, what always cracks me up is when we play musicals and they would have just this area of crap, you know, like this triangle and then they've got the timpanis yeah. and there's maybe, at, maybe for this little thing, they have to jump over to their trap and then, you know, you go back oh, and you've man. got this stupid wood block and oh, like they're the, insane, the auxiliary man. shit. Yeah, that's we played there. one at uh, Avila last year and it was insane, man. I had my mm -hmm. drum set, but I just had all these little stands of it just Stuff. looked like a miniature version of Neil Peart's set where there's right, just yeah. junk mm -hmm. everywhere, wood blocks, and and you I the thought bongos, and I, then you have the chimes that's over right. here, like yeah. it's just funny. Uh, yeah, and I think the director had there was some weird thing that I didn't have that they had, and they brought it to me. You know, we're all just just you know, I think it was the the whip the whip noise. Yeah, that's funny. He yeah. happened to have that, and so we make this trap table. So everything, like I had a trap table under my ride symbol, but I didn't want to get rid of my Tom. I still wanted to have that. And I thought, wow, I've got all this complicated. And then I look over at Brett Jackson next to me and he has every single saxophone that you can imagine, you know. Plus a flute. You know, plus a flute, yeah, yeah. plus a clarinet and bass clarinet. He told me, I was like, yeah, you had every saxophone. He goes, yeah, and bass clarinet. Remember right. that? I'm like, yep. Yeah, yeah. That too. Well, it's funny to me like that. And then they'll get like 10 bars to run over here. Cause they're like, I, I watched an orchestra one time. I mean, they only had three of them. Right. So if somebody right. was on timpani, somebody was on, and they had like for 10 measures, they had to run over and yeah. then they do this stupid, like, you right. know, and then they have to run back over to the and thing. Then you'll have like multiple copies of music. Right. So you can put them on that stand. But I try to do that, make a little circle. I mean, it's harder when you have multiple players, but, mm -hmm. but like you said, yeah, you know, try to, you know, figure out your route, how you're going to get right. there, you know? And, uh, I got to, when I was in LA, uh, uh, uh Gary Foster said, Hey man, you want to come down and 
we're gonna I record every week for Murder She Wrote and I'm like heck yeah so we go to this O. Henry studio that was I mean imagine a gigantic grocery store that they converted into I mean it was the most the hugest most gorgeous studio you've ever wow. seen it was massive wow and Harvey Mason's playing drums and another guy a British guy and I'm there and they're they're loading in everything and Harvey, that played for Aretha Franklin and all those guys, you know, uh, he didn't play drum set once. He played timpani, and those two guys were just running back and forth covering mm -hmm. parts and just nailing them mm -hmm. first and second take. I mean, at, I think the first two pieces, they did two takes, that's it. Like the mm -hmm. first five minutes of the show. After that, they were just nailing first takes on everything. Wow, yeah, It was that's crazy. Funny. And Jules was the... Uh, the other percussionist, he was like, Sammy, do you want to play triangle on this piece? And I'm like, no way. <laughs> He's like, why not? And I'm like, I don't want you guys to do a whole episode of Murder, She Wrote, and I'm the guy that messed up the one triangle part. No way. I'm sitting in the control room watching. I'm loving watching this go down. Right, yeah. That's but uh, yeah, it was pretty amazing. Yeah, that's funny. A murder Shiro. That's out of yeah. nowhere, you know. I mean, and that was I had never seen an electronic guitar before. They had a piano, electric piano, a guitar player, electronic guitar player, bass, mm -hmm. wow. miniature string section, like five strings or six strings, mm -hmm. two sax players, trombones, you know, like this mini big band like miniature that's orchestra. Fun, yeah. It was amazing. That's fun. It was sick. That's and cool. it was the hardest music you've it's harder than any classical we play yeah, in school. Yeah. It's insane. Because it's just changing um, time signatures and tempos. Sure. And they don't even do it that way anymore. Now yeah. they just do it in Pro Tools and whatever. Cut and paste up. But, wow. but uh, yeah, they were doing it live. So, like, you're realizing when the guy's, like, hitting this timpani or something is when the guy's stabbing <laughs> or whatever. So it has to be exactly in time, you know? <laughs> So that so yeah. you got like a conductor and another producer inside in the booth that they all have metronomes going on that they've already programmed in for all these tempo changes and they're watching the video so they're seeing okay I got to change this let's change it from 101 to 102 to make sure it lines up with this the stab yeah stab yeah, yeah, it's got to be right on you right. know and it seems so cheesy because it's just like oh it's just murder she wrote but it's like. All the stuff yeah. that goes on behind the scenes to make that happen. Oh yeah, you know? we I think they're doing that this year with the movie thing, mm -hmm. right at uh, um, uh, Kaufman. Yeah, that yeah, and, and like and we got to do one like that. It was a silent movie in college. It was fun. It was only thirty minutes long or something, you know. But it was pretty fun. We had to yeah. you know kind of had to time it out, and we had a lot of. Uh, we had a lot of rests, you know, but we also had a lot of kind of held notes and then you're waiting yeah. and then you have the, um, and then waiting for the, the guy to fall and you have the, you know, right. and, like, and so he's, you know, the conductors, well, you know, watching the stupid monitor, you know what I mean? Uh, uh, you know yeah. Like, and, and that's, well, and, uh, Doug Talley did that last year. We played it in the park was a, um. It was Hitchcock's first or second, The Lodger, first or second movie. Mm -hmm. It's all black and white, and it was a silent movie. And people do this around the country, but they write their own music to fit those films. And uh, Doug Talley was playing, so he's like, how are we going to do this? You know, for this? And I'm like, just put a click in there so that we have the click in our headphones. And that, 
I mean, it's a lot of work, yeah. but but it ended up we were nailing it because and it was I mean he would put like an extra cowbell so that we'd know when to switch to the next piece and mm. things like that. But it was all to a click that's changing tempo and time signatures wow. and yeah, wow. that's the way to do it. Yeah. To, you know. So yeah, that's crazy, man. So you know, probably probably getting pretty close here. Do you do you have any other uh, kind of story that's been fun in the music business or oh, kinda... oh okay. So I did yeah. want to tell you this is sort of bragging, but but you said uh, yeah a fun story about yeah. being in the music business. Okay, so UMKC uh, the old director that was director of the jazz program Mike Parkinson had this thing uh, with a, a a group of people in uh, Chicago called the Polish American Youth Jazz Foundation where they would pay for teachers from around the country to go over and do this jazz school at the Chopin School of Music in Warsaw, Poland. Well, one year we did it in Krakow, but so we would go over there for, we would teach this camp for two weeks and then we'd go on the road for two weeks. And so we're over there and we're playing gigs and this guy goes, this one producer was like, hey, do you guys want to play in Budapest? And we're like, sure. And he's like, okay, and then, you know, everybody get your stuff and we're load on the train and we're on this 20 hour train ride and you get, you got to stop when you hit the Russian border and you're stopped for like five hours while they check everyone's passports. Mm. It's ridiculous. Yeah. Okay, so we finally get to Budapest and he's like, okay, you're staying in this youth hostel. We're so happy to get to our beds and we we slept for like five, six hours and he comes, okay, everybody, you got to get up, man. You got to get up and get all your stuff and put in the van. We're going to go to the show. And I'm like, okay, whatever. We're going to the show and you're... You're just kind of wandering, seeing all these statues, and we pull up, the van pulls up to the back of the stage, and we go up on the stage, and we're playing in front of like 20,000 people mm -hmm. at this outdoor, mm -hmm. gigantic, you mm -hmm. know, stage that they had built, and, and it was Earth Day, and so that was one of the first, I remember we had Earth Day when I was at, uh, in Boston, like, 91, so this mm -hmm. was like 98... Mm -hmm. Well, eh, might have been before that, but but anyway, uh, well, I guess it was ninety six or ninety seven. But mm -hmm. anyway, I'd never experienced anything like that. Just a bunch of guys, you know, playing Kansas City jazz mm -hmm. for you know, and they just loved it. Sure. So that was a fun. Oh yeah, I'm sure. Fun yeah. Experience. And I've I've heard that around the world too. It's really funny. I keep telling the story that. Hopper uh, was talking about going down to Brazil or mm -hmm. somewhere in South America and he, he was down there getting jam with these guys and he's like come on play your bossa and they're like ugh you know yeah. you know they're like no 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 we want your swing you know yeah. and, and so and Matt's like ugh you know so so it was really neat how they're like no 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 we're we're tired of playing our samba bullshit yeah. you know we want to play your and so Matt's playing his thing and then finally he got them to play uh play some bossa and he's like it's just a freaking cloud you know i yeah. mean the, the drummers are just you know insane and you're, yeah. you're just soloing over you know just nothing you know i mean yeah. it's just so smooth and yeah their their pocket is insane you know yeah. like and but i'm sure like he you know and he was talking about that they're you know they were a little uh tight you know i mean their their swing was a little tighter than right. than the the just you know anybody in the jazz scene here you yeah. know you get them doing like a medium swing and they're going to absolutely destroy that you know because yeah. I mean, that's our stuff you know it's yeah. kansas city 
but uh, but it was so interesting how they were so appreciative yes you know of, of yes. american music I mean, oh, it sounds yeah. like you you had the well, same that's experience weird. you know michael we, michael Ibronyak played before us and they're all these i mean we're just sitting there listening to the bands playing before us going these guys are amazing and we're just like regular can't i mean they're we had guys from around the country but we were they wanted us to play kansas city style music jazz and we were and we were just like well they thought it was the greatest thing ever you know mm -hmm. So, and it did, you know, there is something to going on the road and playing the same music like that where it really helps you get better also, sure, you know, yeah. make it sounds better, so. I can't imagine like Louie back in 1940 or something, like the yeah. USO tour or something oh, over, yeah. Yeah. over in France or somewhere and they're just tearing it up and, yes. and these guys have never heard anything like this right. before. Right, right. You know, I mean, that, yeah. I can't imagine what kind of feeling that oh, was. Oh, yeah. You know, just the... Yeah, I mean, it, that's just really always amazing that a lot of people here, we just get bombarded out of your commercials, you know, and the movies and like, I mean, doctor's office. I mean, we just get bombarded with music and take it for granted, you know, here in America. And uh, and then just how appreciative they are over there with it, it seems. Yeah, it's just, you know. it's like how Matt loves the Brazilian mm -hmm. style samba, you know. They're like, ah, we hear it every day, you know. So yeah. it's something different, you know. We hear bastard versions of, you know, that, yes. that, you know, the Kansas City guys playing good. I mean, the, you know, everybody here, you know, the jazz scene plays good stuff, but we don't, we don't sound like Venezuela does, right? You know, or any of those countries down but there. But I, I know? think like uh, Doug Allwater and those guys, mm -hmm. they, they have the idea. I think for that kind of music, man. Like you can practice it at home, but it you got to go down there. You got to go down there for a week or a month or whatever. You can figure out how to pull it off and just submerge yourself in that culture, you know. Mm -hmm. And because you can tell it in his playing and the guy guys that have gone down there and experienced it, it's really, you know. Yeah, that's cool, man. Mm -hmm. Well, probably uh probably wrapping up here. Um. Again, uh, this is uh, this is Sam Platt, drummer in Kansas City, and uh, we'll be back next time to talk about uh, more stuff with more people. So, um, thanks for coming, man. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, yeah. Rob. Yeah, that was fun, dude. Um, see you guys next time. All right. Thanks. See you.